Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. All I'm saying is...
Muhammad Ali. There he was, right in front of me and a whole bunch of other newspaper men pointing down to us like this. I told you, I told you, I told you. Look for Liston to win. Absolutely the greatest. I like in about one to three rounds. He was perfect for television. He was the provocateur, which is what TV wanted. As we got near to the fight, new fellas showed up. Not Max. Ali's interface with the counterculture and the beginnings of his Like me. 
Well, he told me to bet my life that you wouldn't go three rounds. Well, if you want to lose your money, then bet on money. If I could be somebody who was whistling past the graveyard, somebody who had to be scared, who was trying to you know, keep his courage up before he was destroyed. I felt that Sonny Liston was going in and squashed this uh, boastful, braggardly kid like an ant. All set now. World heavyweight boxing title on the line. Just the anticipation, my father thinking that Ali was going to get killed literally by Sonny Liston because that is what people thought. The real drama around this fight was whether this hysterical man child was going to lose his nerve, whether he was going to show up, and whether he was going to be killed. Very slippery. Greatest of all time, greatest athlete, ambassador, human being of all time. The challenger is jabbing all. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Look at the guy yawning. Tell us what you think at the end of the world. Look at the videos. There's documentaries. There's movies. And it's hard to sum him up because you can do documentaries on different parts of his life. Never would have 
upset the odds makers, he won. Nothing in Cassius Clay's past prepared him to become Muhammad Ali. Cassius is not my name no more, especially Muhammad Ali now. Muhammad Ali, right, Muhammad Ali. White America won't stand for it, which they did. Black people in many parts of this country weren't allowed to drink from the same water fountains as white people, to eat in the same restaurant. Cassius is in a better position than anyone else to restore a sense of uh, racial pride to not only our people in this country, but all over the world. How do you feel about Malcolm Killing? I feel that it will touch off a war here in New York City between uh, the black Muslims and the Lion Muhammad. The head of the World Boxing Association. He was going to take Muhammad Ali's title away because Muhammad Ali did not think like he wanted him to think. The title does not belong to the title holder. The title belongs to the World Boxing Association. A rematch of Liston was scheduled for November of 1964 in Boston. <laughs> Steamed up. Uh, Calling him Cassius Clay. No. Cassius Clay, yes. 
Why you wanna say Cassius Clay when Howard yes. goes sailing and everybody's calling you Muhammad Ali? Then why you gotta be one of all people who's color to keep saying Cassius Clay? Why don't you call me my name, man? Well, what's your name? You told me your name was Cassius Clay. I never told ago. you my name was Cassius Clay. My name is Muhammad Ali, and you will announce it right there in the center of that ring after the fight if you don't do it now. So, ladies and gentlemen, as the two contestants prepare for battle right now, Exactly who I am. Say my name. Then he'd humiliate him. And he was screaming at him, what's my name? What's my name? Say my name. The Director of Selective Service is going to establish tonight a random selection a sequence, a draft lottery, a live report on tonight's picking of the birthdays for the draft. It was the first lottery used to order men into military service since 1942. As you have just seen, the heavyweight champion of the world is rejected induction into the military service. People say, well, the Vietnam War, everybody was against it. Wrong. Wrong. 
Oddly enough, I'm going to rewind this a little bit because, hey, I thought I just said at 2020, never mind. Quit hitting Muhammad Ali like that. Bro, 
broken jaw. He is a beaten man, and he is a broken fighter. And so all of the millions of dollars that loom before him, whether Foreman match or a Frazier rematch, are suddenly gone. What was once a very great fighter becomes now part of fistic history in all probability. Everyone that stepped in the ring with him. I had beaten everybody that Muhammad Ali had lost to. The challenger for the heavyweight title, Dick George Foreman, the undefeated heavyweight. So I thought I was the toughest thing ever invented. George was a big, strong, young, impervious to pain heavyweight. If he put you, you know, if he put you six feet deep, ultimately, George Foreman didn't have a problem with that. He was that vicious. One punch of mine was, was equal to 20 of any other heavyweight. Whatever he hits, he destroys. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! I got Joe Frazier who had dropped Muhammad Ali. The most menacing heavyweight of all time. He, it would be George Foreman. I was going to be the best heavyweight that ever existed. He is with Ken Norton. And the reason for that, of course, is that he doesn't like George Foreman one bit. Do you really believe, Ali, that he yeah, can beat man. this man? Yeah, the man went 24 rounds with me, broke my jaw in the first round. I was in shape to soccer fight. In those days, he was a bully. The people around him were afraid of him. Foreman had really brutalized the people who trained him, and they were terrified of him. Even the hell he gave me, as fast as I am, as accurate as I am, I couldn't whoop Ken Norton. I had beaten the best in Joe Frazier. No doubt about it, I had beaten the best. People had something to say about that. I said, you know what? kill one of these fellas, then they'll shut up. And it looks like Norton has really been staggered. Foreman was a guy who destroyed Frazier, destroyed Kenny Norton. Whipped by Kenny Norton, I knocked Kenny Norton out easily. Once again, Muhammad Ali found himself in great demand. The WBC and the WBA mandated the fight, the public certainly wanted it, and the media clamored for it. I think George Foreman will knock Muhammad Ali out and it'll end Muhammad Ali's career. Uh, the boxers were scared, handlers were scared. The only person that didn't appear scared of Foreman was Ali. I'll prove the world that I'm still the fastest, the prettiest, the most classiest, the most scientific, the greatest fighter of all time. Everybody was scared but Muhammad Ali himself. As for the fight itself, discussion centered not on who would win, but on how much punishment Foreman would dish out. Time may have come to say goodbye to Muhammad Ali. And now we understand that George Foreman is about to make his way to the ring. Because very honestly, I don't think he can beat George Foreman. Cosell was convinced that Ali was washed up. That would be Howard Cosell. The great loop. This guy was the closest thing to a human monster I, I'd ever seen before. He was certainly the scariest boxer. Look at this now as they stare. Muhammad Ali beginning to talk to George Foreman. They're really putting a stare on each other. I looked him in the eye. 
to stare him down and said, oh, George, you were in school when I was beating Sonny Lister. Gone in the past four years beyond two rounds in any fight. thought of as unbeatable was his stamina. The first round, all of us yelled out, get off the road. And he would just say, shut up, I know how to do it. Well, I would say that the, the round was very even for that time. And Ali totally got to the guy's head. And he didn't even realize it. It was Muhammad Ali's fertile mind that created the rope. Here we go, round number two, the determined Ali get off his stool in between rounds. intellect and intelligence and how that can compete against anything. And believe me, I was a big, powerful giant in the ring with Muhammad. I mean, a knockout audience. He stood up to me. Foreman setting him up against the wall. What a... Look at him. Supreme in the ear of Foreman. So young, so strong. Not supposed to do. Leaning up against the ropes. Four punches downstairs on Ali. So fearless. I had him beat. I really did. And really thought I had him beat up in the body, had him tired. Continues to talk. Continues. Against George Foreman, who does away with his opponents one after another in less than three rounds. George not going that type of distance a long time. He was treading in water, you know, never been in before. This is the furthest that George Foreman has gone in a fight since 1972. Missing the shots that he missed, it drained him. Look at Foreman's face, he does look tired. Nobody knew the strength of Muhammad Ali. He was manhandling him, just like Archie said, grabbing him, and he emptied the guy's tank. I was afraid he was going to get killed by a George Foreman that many of our young viewers don't know. Whoa, perfect timing.
best heavyweight who ever lived. I am the greatest. The world heavyweight boxing champion, Muhammad Ali. Retirement was a dirty word. Muhammad Ali, now in the ring. 
awaiting the arrival of Larry Holmes. He was really suffering from Parkinson's already. He was was he really? Yeah, I was already kicked in. Evidence of some speech problems. It was a fight Ali never should have taken. so slow for the 10th round. He was a shell of himself as a boxer at that particular moment in time, and it actually broke Larry Holmes' heart. Yeah, but it was like, it was like hitting a slow-moving heavy bag. Possibly father of all time. I appreciate you, dead soldier. May your voice live on forever. Muhammad Ali, part three, 300 series, the greatest of all time. child, whom they dubbed Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr., would one day not only challenge the finest fighters in the world, but the world itself. A precocious but polite child, young Cassius was raised as a God-fearing Baptist in the oldest of Southern traditions. It wasn't until the age of 12 that the young boy had any inkling of the destiny that lay ahead. In October of 1954, Clay and a friend rode their bicycles to the Columbia Auditorium, which was hosting the Louisville Home Show. 
spending their afternoon looking at the wares of various African-American merchants and gorging themselves on the free popcorn and candy, neither boy had any idea that this afternoon would change history. When the boys had had their fun and their fill of the free food, they went outside to ride home, but Cassius's brand new red and white Schwinn was missing, stolen. It turned out to be the luckiest day of his life. Crying and upset, the young boy sought help from a policeman at the auditorium, Joe Martin. Clay told Martin that his bike had been stolen and that he was going to whoop whomever had taken it. Martin, who coached a boxing program for local youths, replied that if he was going to whoop someone, he had better learn how to fight first. It was the beginning of a long friendship and a glorious career. Martin coached his new protege through an impressive amateur career that included 108 bouts, six Kentucky Golden Gloves championships, and two national AAU titles before he was 18. This led to his 1960 appearance at the Olympics in Rome, where he won a gold medal for the United States. Though he would later throw that medal off a bridge and into the Ohio River in disgust at the fact that it hadn't changed his status as a black man living in the segregated South. Upon his return to the States, Clay turned pro with his first fight against Tony Hunsucker in Louisville. Winning the fight in six rounds, he set the stage for what was to come. Racking up an impressive string of victories, the young fighter had only one goal in mind, the heavyweight championship of the world. Though the racial climate in America was not favorable to blacks in the mid-20th century, with suffocating social policies aimed at maintaining the illusion and semblance of white superiority, things had been different in sports for quite some time. Boxing in particular had broken the color barrier early on with the rise of the first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson. Johnson, who had begun boxing at the age of 16, had captured the heavyweight title from Tommy Burns in 1908. The idea that a black man could hold the heavyweight title so enraged whites that they began searching for what writer Jack London called a great white hope. London and the rest of the whites who were offended by Johnson's success soon found the man they were looking for in former champion Jim Jeffries. The two men finally met each other in the ring on July 4, 1910. Johnson retained his title, but the price for it would be blood. Enraged whites went on a rampage after the fight, killing and injuring many blacks in the process. Johnson would continue to defend his title, however, the government soon charged him with a violation of the Mann Act, which made the transporting of women over state lines for immoral purposes illegal. And just who did they charge him with violating? His wife. Though he had broken down some of the racial barriers blocking his people from true success in American society, Johnson's flamboyance and in-your-face attitude made him very unpopular with the powers that be. Joe Lewis, on the other hand, would emerge not only as a hero to black Americans, but as a champion admired and beloved by the entire world. He had begun boxing at the age of 10 when his family moved from Alabama to Detroit. By the age of 20, he had won his first Golden Gloves title. After turning pro, he won an impressive 12 bouts in his first year alone. It culminated with his defeat of former champion Primo Carnera before a Yankee Stadium crowd of 62,000. He seemed invincible, that is, until he met Max Schmeling. Schmeling, a German fighter with a reputation as a hard hitter, knocked Lewis out in the 12th round on June 19, 1936. The loss would sting 
long after the fight was over. In 1937, Lewis won the heavyweight title by defeating James Braddock with an eighth round knockout. After winning, Lewis said simply, I don't want anyone to call me champ until I beat Schmeling. He did just that in 1938. By this time, Schmeling stood as one of the most potent symbols of Adolf Hitler's racial philosophy. Although he was opposed to the Nazi regime and would ultimately help Jews escape the terror of the Holocaust by smuggling them out of war-torn Germany. His defeat at the hands of a black man, however, had the effect of making Lewis a worldwide hero. That effect was made ever more powerful during World War II when Lewis stepped out of the ring and into an army uniform, putting his career on hold in the defense of his country. When he returned to the ring after the war, he continued defending his title with the success that he had had before the conflict. When he retired in 1949, Joe Lewis had been champion for over 12 years and had defended his title successfully more times than any man before or since. Years later, another young black fighter would carry on in the tradition of both Johnson and Lewis, combining the flamboyance and outspokenness of one with the character and skill of the other. But Cassius Clay was not yet the heavyweight champion of the world. That prize was currently in the brutish hands of Sonny Liston, a tough bruiser of a fighter who saw the exuberant newcomer as little more than a loudmouth pain in the neck. Clay had started a harassment campaign against Liston, trying to force a fight, even going so far as to rent a bus and drive it to Sonny's house while calling him a coward and a bum through a bullhorn. The whole situation finally came to a head when Clay approached Liston at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, where the champ was shooting craps and losing. Liston was in no mood to be harangued by the mouth from the south. Drawing a gun, Sonny fired, frightening his young tormentor into a hasty retreat. The gun was filled with blanks. But Cassius had gotten what he was after, a shot at the heavyweight title. During the build-up to the fight, Clay became a worldwide celebrity, mostly due to the fact that he never seemed to stop talking. How about a prediction on what round you'll defeat Sonny uh, Liston? I predicted eight on Sonny Liston, but he kept popping off about I talk too much, I need a glove down my throat, and he's going to take a doctor to cut it out, and he made me mad and I had to cut that prediction from six, eight rounds to six rounds. Liston must fall in six. If you like to lose your money, then be a fool and bet on Sonny. But if you want to have a good day, then put it on Clay. Sonny Liston is popping off his mouth and making all of these way out statements. And I'm going to put an end to it February 25th. And, and, and I don't have to convince nobody now that I am great. They all know it. So many people here talk about Liston beating me. I'm unranked. It will be no match. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm going to make all of them shut their mouths. Well, now, what about this grudge that's supposed to be going well, on? Well, I don't know nothing about no grudge or nothing. All I want to do is fight and get this thing out of the way. You just soon go right now? Is that all? And now, in it, when I was at his home in Las Vegas, five policemen had to come with dogs to break us up. <laughs> For those of you who won't be able to see the Clay Liston fight, here's the eighth round exactly as it will happen. Clay comes out to meet Liston. And Liston starts to retreat. If Liston goes back to his father, he'll end up in the rain fast seat. Cassius was such a brilliant self-promoter. 
reporter that he once conned Life magazine into running a five-page photo exclusive on his underwater training regimen. In truth, he had no such regimen. He couldn't even swim. He also posed for some publicity photos with four guys who had also just become a worldwide sensation the week before, although many in the American press said that they were just a passing fad. On February 25, 1964, Cassius Clay challenged Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship of the world in Miami, Florida. I don't care how small the ring is, I'll fight that chump in a telephone booth. The fight was a sensation. Clay was the 8-to-1 underdog, and not many people gave him much of a chance of beating the more seasoned and hard-hitting Liston due to his lack of ring experience. Cassius, however, was not lacking in confidence. Showing all the skill and grace for which he would one day be remembered, the younger challenger dominated the older champion by simply outboxing him. After a grueling sixth round, Liston refused to answer the bell for the seventh, thus making Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. the new heavyweight champion of the world. I was getting ready to take him in the eighth and do the feet, but the man stopped it just to keep him making me look so great. I say now, give us that poetry on number seven. He wanted to go to heaven, so I took him in seven. You took him in seven. I am the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it, hold it. You're not that pretty. I'm a bad man. I took up the world. Oh, I'm so great. Oh, I shook up. And what makes it so good? All these hypocrites. You can't call it a bitch. They can't call it a bitch. Because the, I didn't stop the fight. The doctor said, look at me. Oh, I'm so pretty. I shook up the world. Hey, I'm too tough. The new champ wasted no time causing controversy. He announced to a world still stunned by his unexpected upset that he had joined the Nation of Islam, a militant black Muslim group that was headed by Elijah Muhammad. He was also seen in the company of the group's most vocal frontman, the controversial and outspoken Malcolm X. White America was not sure what to make of their new champion or of his new name, Muhammad Ali. Cassius Clay is a name no more, is that right? Yes, sir. It's Muhammad Ali. Muhammad means worthy of all praises, and Ali means most high in the Asian African language. How long have you had the name? Well, for about a, two weeks now. Is anybody special who gave you the name? Yes, sir. My leading teacher, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad. Son of this one made two mistakes in his whole life. That's when he fought me the first time, and that's when he fights me the second time. Are we going to get him? Ali gave Liston a rematch in May of the next year, knocking out the former champ in 2 minutes and 17 seconds in the very first round, and then taunting him with shouts of, Get up, you bum. Get up and fight. No one's going to believe this, as he lay prone on the canvas. It was his first title defense and a spectacular display of the skill with which he would dispatch rivals in years to come. But even with this easy victory over a worthy challenger, there would be controversy. Ali was right. People did have trouble believing in his talent. The punch with which he knocked Liston out became known as the Shadow Punch, because it came so fast few in the crowd could claim to have seen it. And fast was becoming something of a staple in Ali's life. With all the speed that he displayed against an opponent in the ring, Ali courted and married beauty Sanji Roy 41 days after they met.
and filed for divorce just 11 months later, claiming that Sanji had not lived up to the tenets of his faith, as she had promised to do before they were wed. But domestic problems aside, Ali was having a fairly good year. Do you feel your recent marital difficulty will affect your career in any way? No, that's nothing. That's out of the way. Uh, that'll soon be over. Uh, we'd rather not discuss it in public. It's in the courts. They'll handle it. But this is just another small problem that will soon be out of my way. On November 22nd, he defended his title against former champ Floyd Patterson. Patterson had fought Sonny Liston prior to the Liston-Clay fight in an attempt to reclaim his heavyweight title for a third time. Having already had two reigns as world heavyweight champ, Floyd Patterson was in a class all by himself. But then again, the new champ was no shrinking violet. Patterson had spoken out against the black Muslims in the weeks prior to the fight, and refused to call him by his Muslim name, preferring to call him Clay instead. Ali made him pay for that by punishing him until the referee stopped the fight in the 12th round. befriended the new champion and forevermore referred to him as Muhammad Ali. On February 14, 1966, the Louisville Draft Board had reclassified Muhammad's draft status as 1A, thereby making him eligible for military service. Ali had previously been disqualified because of his performance on the military's aptitude test, which gave him an IQ of only 78. Embarrassed by this, the champ said simply, I said I was the prettiest, not the smartest. But with the war raging in Vietnam, the government had decided to relax its standards, and Ali was now facing the possibility of having to don military fatigues instead of boxing trunks. He heard the news from the media when they began calling his house and asking him questions regarding his political beliefs and his stance on the war in Asia. Frustrated by this invasion of his privacy and confused as to how the situation had arisen, Ali made a statement that would resonate for the rest of his life. Man, I ain't got no quarrel with them yet, Kong. The papers had their headline, and the nation's columnists had a new reason to go after the embattled champion. The first effect of all of this was that his upcoming bout with Ernie Terrell was in danger of being canceled due to the fact that every state that had agreed to host the fight eventually caved into political pressure and withdrew their sanction. The fight was ultimately scheduled to be held in Toronto, but by this time many of the theaters that had been interested in the closed-circuit broadcast rights had pulled out because of the same pressure being exerted on the individual state boxing commissions. To make matters worse, the challenger, Terrell, had decided that he was no longer interested in fighting Ali in light of the fact that his pay was to be a percentage of the profits, and now there seemed to be very little prospect of there being any. This led to the substitution of Canadian heavyweight champion George Chivalo as Ali's opponent. Chivalo, a tough fighter whom Rocky Marciano, the only undefeated boxing champion in history, once deemed unknockoutable, went the distance with Muhammad, but lost a unanimous decision to him. Ali's next three bouts took place overseas. Fearing that he would not be able to make a living in the United States because of the hostility displayed against him by the public and the press alike, Ali's team decided that they would take their fighter and his substantial earning power to London and Frankfurt. 
The move made Muhammad Ali something of a folk hero to the citizens of Europe, who felt that he was making the World Heavyweight Championship available to the whole world. For over five decades, title fights had been fought primarily on American soil. Ali returned to the U.S. to defend his title against Cleveland Big Cat Williams in Houston, Texas on November 14, 1966. The fight was over quickly, with Williams being completely dominated by Muhammad. In fact, he only managed to hit Ali three times in the three-round bout, which ended, mercifully, when Williams was knocked out. Ali was next scheduled to defend his title against Ernie Terrell. Unfortunately for the challenger, this time the fight would not be canceled. Terrell made the mistake of constantly referring to Ali as Clay, a move designed to annoy the champion, but one that in his present predicament only served to enrage him. The fight was and is regarded as one of the cruelest exhibitions in boxing history. Muhammad himself would even come to regret it. The champion tortured Terrell for the full 15 rounds, bringing him just short of a knockout and then backing off, only to wallop him again with further combinations, breaking his eye socket and causing his retina to swell. The entire time, Ali kept shouting to the dazed Terrell, What's my name, chump? Say my name. Ali won the bout in a unanimous decision. His next battle would once again pit him against the might of the United States government. On April 28, 1967, Muhammad Ali showed up at the Houston Induction Center for the U.S. Armed Forces. When the time came for him to take one step forward signifying his induction, Ali stood quietly and refused. He was taken away, and the consequences of this action were explained to him. When a registrant refuses this first step, when his name is called, he is quietly removed from the room. He is counseled as to the seriousness of his refusal. He is given the penalties, the maximum legal penalties that this act could uh, result in. If he again refuses, we ask him if he would give a statement that he refuses induction. If he says no, we dismiss him. If he says yes, he writes out a statement in his own handwriting. We witness it, and then we release him. We notify the draft board and make a report to the United States Attorney. Ali responded that he understood exactly what he was doing, but that he could not because of his religious beliefs go into the army and kill people with whom he had no quarrel. It was explained to the champ that in all likelihood, he would not serve in a combat role within the army, but would in fact be allowed to fight exhibitions and make personal appearances for the entertainment of the troops. Once again, Ali stood on his principles and stated that he could not serve in any capacity that would give aid to a war that he found to be morally wrong. That's when all hell broke loose. The army released a press statement to the effect that Muhammad Ali had refused induction into the armed forces, that the matter was now in the hands of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. Notification of his refusal is being made to the United States Attorney, the State Director of the Selective Service System, and the local Selective Service Board for whatever action deemed to be appropriate. Jeff, how did they treat you in there? To make matters worse, less than an hour after the announcement, the New York State Boxing Commission stripped Ali of his license as well as his title. All other boxing commissions in the country followed suit before Muhammad had even been charged with anything, much less convicted.
Muhammad Ali was no longer the heavyweight champion of the world. The title that he had worked so hard to earn for most of his life was gone in an instant. He also had no chance of regaining his title in the ring anytime soon, seeing as how he could no longer fight legally in any state. The overseas prospects were better, but in a move that many saw as vindictive, the U.S. government also stripped him of his passport, thus leaving him without a way to earn a living to support his new wife, Belinda, or the first of their four children. The right of dissent is tremendously important in this country. We must preserve it. We must even encourage it. Because by dissent, you produce change, and through change, you produce progress. And so, therefore, let's have dissent. Let's have change. Let's have progress. That's the American story in the past, and that's what we want for the future. Ali had unleashed the full power of the establishment against him, and many thought that this was finally the end of Mighty Mouth. They couldn't have been more wrong. Never one to lie down, in the ring or out of it, Muhammad fought back with his greatest weapon, himself. The anger about the Vietnam War had now spread to institutions of higher learning. Because of the controversy surrounding him, colleges all over the country were clamoring to get the now former champ to come and speak at their campuses. The black man has been brainwashed and it's time for him to learn something about himself. When you look at television, you see white outside bars, white swan soap, king white soap, white rain harris, white tornado flow wax, white plus toothpaste. He, he go, uh, he, 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 they taught him he was a little boy and Mary had a little and his feet is white as snow. <laughs> then they taught him about Snow White. <laughs> then there's the White House. <laughs> Everything bad is black. So he's been brainwashed. So now he needs to be taught something about himself so he can be proud and quit worrying you and pushing you out of your neighborhoods, quit running your daughter and quit chasing you out of your schools. And every day you got a headache with this Negro that has been brainwashed by your kind. So now it's our job to re-brainwash him, to teach him that rich dirt is black dirt. Don't feel bad. Strong coffee is black coffee. You understand? You make your wheat be integrated. <laughs> so now he feels proud. Now he's not begging no more. Now he wants to be himself. He's not worrying you no more. So he needs some black history, and he needs some black culture, so he'll know who he is and be proud to be who he is and quit worrying you so much. Any white woman in this audience today any white man in this audience today, in their right minds, don't want little black boys and little black, white, black girls coming around your home schools and churches, looking to marry your sons and daughters, and in return, introducing your grandchildren as little half-brown, kinky-head Negro children. And speaking was something that Ali did almost as well as fighting. We're not seeking to lose our identity in blood mixing and our beautiful black African history. We don't hate you. We don't hate those of you who are white. We just want to stay black. We love my color. I just love myself. In his speeches, he focused on his ongoing fight with the U.S. government, as well as his feeling that he had been unfairly barred from his profession. I would like to hear this from you. I would like to hear this from you. And I want the world and the cameras to hear. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? Events took on a revival meeting flavor with Muhammad leading the crowd in a call and response of who's the champ and the crowd shouting, you are. 
He also spoke out fervently on black power and pride, as well as proving that he was perfectly willing to go to prison if that was to be the consequence of defending his religious beliefs. I said that I'm going to be a man, I'm going to fight it legally. If I lose it, I'm just going to jail. The battle raged on in the courts, with Ali sticking to his guns just as stubbornly as the government stuck to theirs. Eventually, the whole thing wound up in the U.S. Supreme Court. And in true fashion, Ali emerged the victor by a unanimous decision. The charges were dropped, and Muhammad's long nightmare, one that had plagued him for seven years, was finally over. Almost. The next thing on his mind was regaining his title. It would be a long road. The last time Ali had fought in a ring was an exhibition bout against former heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano in 1969. Ali made his real comeback to the ring with a fight against Jerry Quarry in Atlanta, Georgia on October 26, 1970. The bout didn't last long. Ali knocked Quarry out in the third round and declared that he now wanted a shot at Joe Frazier, who held what Muhammad thought of as his personal property, the heavyweight title. But it would not be Frazier whom Ali next met in the ring. Why you no go the army? I will tell you Monday night in the first clinch. Ah, chicken, you pee chicken. Pee 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 chicken pee. Good deal. Keep talking. Chicken. Oscar Bonavina, who managed to keep getting up for the full 15 rounds, taking a great deal of punishment in the process, but also dishing out an amount of abuse that Muhammad had never had to withstand before. It was an ominous precursor. The fight of the century, as it was billed around the world, would take place in Madison Square Garden on March 8, 1971. Finally, Ali was to get his shot against Smokin' Joe Frazier. Tradition has a real belt, and for Joe Frazier to be a champion, he's got to beat me. See, those eliminations were only imitations. He's not the real champion. People all over the world were awaiting this bout between two undefeated heavyweight champions. You're not fighting Oscar Bonavetta. You're not fighting Sonny Lister. You're fighting Joe Frazier. <laughs> if Joe Frazier hooks me, I'm getting on my hands up and knees. All across the ring, look up to you say, you drama was almost as much of a battle as the fight itself promised to be, with Ali taunting Frazier in a seemingly never-ending stream of verbal abuse that the more reserved and soft-spoken champion could not match. Joe Frazier scares you newsmen and all these little people walking around who don't know boxing. But look at my face. I'm the original champion, a veteran of 186 fights, not a track, two-time United States Golden Glove champion. Two-time United States National AAU champion, World Olympic champion, four years out of training, a six-week notice, took Frazier's toughest opponent and whooped him easy as he did. It was the beginning of a feud that would outlast the careers of both fighters. But first, they had to fight it out in the ring. And fight it out they did. 
In a battle that was not so much boxing as all-out warfare, both men gave the world more than its money's worth in this epic struggle that went all the way to the final bell. Both fighters put their all into the confrontation, and Frazier even scored an embarrassing knockdown of Ali in the 15th round. Frazier won the fight by a unanimous decision, seemingly stopping Muhammad dead in his tracks. Ali was humiliated. Not only had he been unable to live up to his own pre-fight hype, but he had also suffered his first professional loss, and in a title bout, no less. He jumped back into the ring with renewed zeal. In the past, he had been able to rely on his sheer speed to get him out of trouble in the ring. But as age crept up on Ali, he now had to become a more defensive fighter. He fought a series of matches with a diverse array of challengers, handily beating all of them, all the while talking about how he wanted another shot at Joe Frazier. Many people doubted whether Muhammad could be beaten a second time, and Ali was working overtime in an attempt to get Frazier into the ring by calling him names and making himself a thorn in Smokin' Joe's side. For his part, Frazier just wanted Ali to shut his damn mouth. Joe needn't have worried. A young fighter, an ex-Marine, was about to shut it for him. Ken Norton was a virtual unknown when he stepped into the ring against Muhammad Ali on March 31, 1973. His last fight had been against a journeyman fighter, Charlie Reno, a bout that he had won in 10 rounds. For the Ali fight, Norton was to be paid a meager $50,000 purse. This was $47,000 more than he had made for fighting Reno. Ali took the contest lightly, training for only two weeks before meeting what everyone assumed was a severely outclassed opponent. The price he would pay for his nonchalance was disaster. The fight started off with Muhammad using his usual tactic of jabbing at Norton to gauge his weaknesses. But it was clear, even at this early stage, that something in Norton's style was giving Ali problems. Then it happened. In the second round, Ali was caught off guard by a straight right from the challenger, and it snapped his jaw like a twig, breaking the bone cleanly. How do you tell your jaw, though? It makes a sound, champ. It makes a sound To the former champion's credit, he gamely fought on, his cornermen doing their best to hide the blood that was gushing from his mouth in the fear that the fight would be stopped. For ten rounds, he fought through the most agonizing pain he had ever endured, but to no avail. Norton was declared the victor at the end of the bout. The loss to Ken Norton was the low point of his long career. Not even the draft board struggle had prepared him for this. In true Ali fashion, he demanded a rematch, with a few months off to train, and to let his jaw, which had been wired shut in a 90-minute surgery following the fight, time to heal. He got his rematch on September 30th, 1973. In a fight that was even then regarded as a razor-thin victory, Ali managed to pull out his world-famous jab and outscore Norton on the judges' cards. He also managed to keep away from Norton's devastating right hand. Having avenged himself on Ken Norton, Muhammad's pride now demanded that he seek revenge against the only other man to beat him professionally, Joe Frazier. Frazier had not had an easy ride since the first fight with Ali. He had lost the heavyweight title to a young fighter by the name of George Foreman earlier in the year. But for Muhammad Ali, 
The title fight that he wanted so badly would have to wait. It was more important at this time that he dispatch Joe Frazier and regain some of the aura of invincibility that he had lost. The second fight with Frazier took place on January 28, 1974. Once again, the venue was Madison Square Garden in New York City. Once again, the outspoken Ali dominated the pre-fight build-up. Frazier's just so easy to hit, and he can't back up. He's got no boxing ability whatsoever. He just, like, like I was in a That's all he do. Frazier don't even back up two steps. Frazier don't have a left jail. Frazier don't have a right. Uh, all Frazier's got is a wild left hook. Frazier has no defense ability. Frazier has no timing, no reflexes, no soul, no rhythm. When you say no soul, what do you mean? Soul, just timing and rhythm. Like a, like a Freddie Astaire, a baller dancer. You know, glass. Unfortunately for Joe Frazier, when it came time to go into the ring, all the playfulness had left Ali. He was now all business. And he had trained hard for this fight in the anticipation of restoring his good name. The long-awaited rematch lacked the drama of their initial meeting in 1971, and there wasn't as much flow to the action as in Ali Frazier 1. Muhammad would smother Joe each time the Philadelphia-based bruiser would get in close. Though the match was somewhat tamed by superfight standards, the bout did go the full 15 rounds, and in the end, Ali had to settle for a unanimous decision instead of his hoped-for knockout. His honor avenged, Ali could now focus on the man who held what many considered to be his title, George Foreman. The setting would be Zaire. I want to rest a few months, and I want to fight George Foreman, knock him out, and truly retire well invested. The rumble in the jungle, as the fight was called, was set to be fought at 3 a.m. on September 25th, 1974. Stick him, move, stay out of range, be in good shape. He'll retire, George Foreman. This man depends on getting his land in the first one or two rounds. If he don't do that, he's frustrated. Stick him in left jab, right cross him, tie him up and box him, and you'll retire. Darling. Now, I know this man is going to whoop George Foreman, and I'm going to whoop him of all places in Africa, in the Congo, where the Lumumba boys are. In a spectacle that the world was now becoming accustomed to, Ali proved again that he could out-talk anyone before a fight. I've never saw George Foreman tired yet. Charles Fulman lately haven't heard the man say round four, round seven, round nine, round thirteen, last round. Then I want to see, I can't take nothing, George, but I haven't saw George in a good scuffle yet. Calling George the mummy and a bully, Muhammad whipped the residents of Zaire into a fervor leaving the shy foreman to wonder whether or not he had any supporters in this country of over 40 million. But some in Ali's camp were not so sure of their fighter's chances against the young champion. For the first time, many people were afraid for his safety. They had good reason to be. Though shy and quiet outside the ring, Big George, as he was called, was a formidable boxer. He had devastated Joe Frazier, knocking him down six times in only two rounds to claim the title in Kingston, Jamaica, only the year before. He had also destroyed Ken Norton in two rounds six months prior to arriving in Zaire. His hitting power was already legendary, 
In 40 bouts, he had remained undefeated and had won 37 of those by knockout. The pressure was on Ali as never before. The stadium was packed with over 60,000 fans, all of them chanting Ali Bumbaye at the top of their voices. The phrase is Swahili for killing Ali. Muhammad had spent the months before the fight preaching to anyone who would listen that he would defeat George Foreman by using his still impressive speed and dancing away from the champion. And I thought, son, and listen, hitting power didn't mean nothing because usually I fixed the ones that can't find nothing to hit. So I never worry about Robert Duvall, Lloyd Haynes, 
Ben Johnson, James Earl Jones, John Marley, Paul Winfield, Dina Merrill. I want to be there when they bust your guts and split your face. You'll see those behind the legend. his second reign as champion, and was just as outspoken as he had always been, only this time the world loved him for it. Cuz, what's this you're telling me about Joe Lewis beating me? Yes, I believe that Joe Lewis would beat you, but he wouldn't give up like some of those bums that you If Joe Lewis hit me once, I'm gonna move. Who bums? One other thing had changed. Now that Ali was the man at the top, his greatest rival was itching for a chance to knock the title holder off his throne. Now Joe Frazier wanted him. He would get his wish on October 1st, 1975, in a contest that was dubbed by promoter Don King as the Thrilla in Manila. Once again, Ali taunted the hapless Frazier mercilessly. Joe did his talking in the ring. I got a little gorilla here. This is his conscience. I keep it right in my pocket everywhere I go. Back there. And I wrote a sharp poem. is considered by many fans to be the greatest boxing exhibition in the sport's long history. For 14 rounds, the two combatants pounded and pummeled each other in the stifling heat of the Philippines. Ali said later that this fight was the closest thing to death that he had ever experienced. Many friends of the champs think that the bout did him irreparable neurological damage due to the over 440 blows that he withstood at the hands of the enraged Joe Frazier. It ended finally in the 14th round when Joe's doctor stopped the fight because both of his eyes were now swollen shut and he could no longer see. When Muhammad realized that he had won the fight and that Frazier was not going to answer the bell for the next round, he collapsed in his corner. There would be no victory lap of the ring that night. After the thriller in Manila, Ali took a well-needed rest and married his third wife, Veronica Porsche. Belinda had left him just a few months before. He then set about the business of defending his title, even though those around him were beginning to wonder whether or not he should leave the fight game for his own good. He fought Ken Norton for a third time, and as always, had trouble with the one fighter he was never able to dominate in the ring. He kept his title, but only by a razor-thin margin in the judges' scoring. On February 15, 1978, he once again stepped into the ring as the heavyweight champion of the world. His opponent was a little-known fighter with only seven professional bouts to his name, Leon Spinks. Most people assumed that this would be just another routine title defense for the finest boxer ever to put on a pair of gloves. They were dead wrong. 
once again underestimated his challenger, training lightly and not taking the fight seriously enough. Spinks made him pay with his title. Unanimous decision, the decidedly un-Ali-like Spinks defeated the man whom he regarded as a personal hero. Muhammad was devastated. He had lost his title in the ring. But he was surprisingly gracious in defeat. We all gonna lose in life. You're gonna lose your wife, you're gonna lose your mother, you're gonna lose your father. We all have losses in life. And one who can really overcome them losses and just keep living and trying to come back, I'll be successful. You can't go die because you lose. I did my best. And I trained, I was in shape. And so uh, it was a loss. Privately, he began training for the rematch that very night, running until he was exhausted and repeating the same phrase over and over, gotta get my title back, gotta get my title back. On August 15th, just six months after losing his belt to Spinks, Muhammad Ali once again faced him in New Orleans, Louisiana. This time, it was Spinks who was overconfident. After beating his boyhood idol, Spinks had lived the high life and had forgone his usual training regimen. Ali dominated the younger man for 15 rounds, winning a unanimous decision and becoming the first man in the history of boxing to win the heavyweight championship of the world three times. Nine months later, he retired from the ring. It lasted all of one year. On October 2nd, 1980, Muhammad Ali suffered a crushing defeat at the hands of his former sparring partner, Larry Holmes, who was now reigning as the heavyweight champ. One year later, he was similarly dispatched by Trevor Burbank in Nassau. Time had finally caught up with Muhammad Ali. This time, when he announced his retirement, it was for good. But the damage had been done. In 1984, Ali was hospitalized due to what doctors termed mild symptoms of Parkinson's syndrome. Caused by repeated blows to the head, the disorder is marked by an involuntary shaking of the hands and a weakened capacity for speech. Almost ten years after the thrill in Manila, Joe Frazier had gotten his revenge. Ali was now a shell of his former self. The world accolades were gone. His famous speed and mouth would serve him no more. And his third wife, Veronica, troubled by what was happening to him, divorced him. But he wasn't down for the count just yet. In the late 80s, Ali married his fourth wife, Lonnie, and began the long journey into what he now calls his true calling. Humanitarian? statesman and promoter of tolerance and peace worldwide. None that are not boxing, this is my main mission, to, to do all I can to propagate our Islam, make the people conscious of our great leader, the honorable wife, Dean Muhammad, and the mission people makes it think that you say mostly think of guerrillas, bombs, hostages, Khomeini, Gaddafi, and this is a so peaceful religion. Islam mean peace. Our greetings, Islamu alaikum is peace. And so this is what I want to promote. The former holder of the heavyweight crown now spends 200 days a year traveling the four corners of the world he once reigned over, 
Only this time, it is to the hospitals and orphanages, to the mosques and homes for the disenfranchised. He has become their champion and their voice, working tirelessly to uplift those whom the world has overlooked. In 1996, in Atlanta, Georgia, a stunned and overjoyed world watched with a tinge of sadness as the man who had danced like a butterfly and stung like a bee lifted the Olympic flame in his once mighty fist and ignited the flame that would burn for the duration of the games. A crowd of over 30,000 live fans chanted his name as he stood on a basketball court at those games to receive a replacement gold medal for the one he had discarded so many years before. With a trembling hand, the fighter who had scorned so much of the establishment, the champion who had been hated and loved by millions, the man who had started his journey so long ago and had eschewed many of the values he now embraced, lifted his new gold medal to his lips and kissed it. That said more than he ever had in his entire life. On the morning of July 4, 1910, 15 special trains pulled into the little desert town of Reno, Nevada. Aboard were thousands of white men who had paid their way across the country to see a prize fight unlike any that had ever taken place before. They had come to see their hero, the white ex-heavyweight champion Jim Jeffries, take back the title from the first African-American ever to hold it. Jack Johnson. It was, said the Chicago Tribune, going to be a contest between the white man's hope and the black peril. Somehow, in the minds of many white Americans, this boxing match would decide whose country America really was. Who was meant to be in charge? his way from obscurity to the top of the heavyweight ranks, won the greatest prize in American sports, 
a prize that had always been the private preserve of white combatants. Then suffered persecution at the hands of his own government and years of exile before the title was taken from him. And he did all these things during the years which marked the low point of African-American life after emancipation. Abandoned by the federal government, denied the vote if they lived below the Mason-Dixon line, and living under the constant threat of mob violence, black Americans at the turn of the 20th century were no longer enslaved, but not yet truly free. Jack Johnson insisted on being free. When whites ran everything, Jack Johnson took orders from no one. While most African Americans struggled merely to survive, Jack Johnson reveled in his riches and his fame. When black Americans were expected to defer to whites, Jack Johnson battered them to the ground. And at a time when the mere suspicion that a black man had flirted with a white woman could cost him his life, Jack Johnson slept with whomever he pleased. To most whites, and to some African Americans, Johnson was a perpetual threat, profligate, arrogant, amoral, a dark menace, and a danger to the natural order of things. The real Jack Johnson was both more and less than those who loved or those who hated him ever knew. Just remember, he told a young reporter not long before he died, whatever you write about me, that I was a man. See, Johnson was a pure individual. everything exactly the way he wanted to do it. And so I don't think it ever crossed his mind that he, Jack Johnson, should be anybody else's version of Jack Johnson. What I like about Jack, he's a self-defined man. Jack didn't tell any lines. I won't say that's what got him into trouble, I think the society was in trouble. And Jack was just being himself. He did present himself as uh, the man of the people, uh, uh, doing good for his people. He, he, didn't, he didn't play that game, and he didn't play the game of Yasa Boss and uh, cutting off his balls just to, to, to present himself as a, a non-threatening uh, creature off, off, off ring. You know? There is nobody like Jack Johnson. Because first thing, when Jack Johnson was fighting, he could have been killed in any of his major fights. There were people out in the audience who probably were willing to murder him. He knew it, they knew it, and everybody in the world knew it. The story of Jack Johnson really is a story of hubris more than race or anything else. Forget about race. That was the color of the system, but that, that didn't define the system. It was about power. 
It might seem that I, who have devoted nearly all the years of my life to boxing, am stepping out of my role when I presume to turn my attention to subjects far removed from the stern business of pugilism. But even a boxer must come in contact with life and its many problems. He sees the high and the low and feels the bumps of the rough places and the delight of the smooth ones. When he has been thrown into all classes of society, when he has felt the stings of life as I have and gloried in the triumphs that were mine, he comes to know many things that are not in the category of sports and boxing. Jack Johnson.